0: Oh, I wanted to sing that last song, that last verse twice. To thee, great one in three, the highest praises be. Hence evermore, thy sovereign majesty may we in glory see. And to eternity, love and adore. I hope you'll go home and sing that song. That's why we give you these bulletins. That you would take the words of these songs with you and, and sing on your own as well. This morning, I want to ask you, how does Jesus comfort troubled hearts? How does Jesus comfort troubled hearts? In some way, it depends on what troubles the heart. Right? Now, last week, we have looked at John chapter 13, and Jesus told his disciples that he's going away, and where he's going, he cannot. they cannot come, at least not for now. And from that news, their hearts were deeply, deeply troubled. So how does he, Jesus, comfort their hearts in the aftermath of the news of his departure? In a nutshell, in a nutshell, the answer is, Jesus introduces them to the three persons of the Trinity and how these persons of the Trinity relate to each other and how they are supposed to assist the disciples in their own journey. Now, if you've paid attention to this introduction, some of you may say, you've got to be kidding me. The doctrine as a, of the Trinity as a comfort to troubled hearts? If anything, many people think, the doctrine of the Trinity is so mysterious that it often creates more confusion than comfort. How can the doctrine of the Trinity be of any comfort to troubled hearts? Well, The answer is in John chapter 14. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 14? If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 936. We encourage you to open your Bibles and follow along the reading of God's Word. For those of you who are visiting us, we are going through a series on the Gospel of John, a sermon series entitled, Jesus, the Revealer of Life. We are in our 16th sermon in this series, even though we're just in chapter 14. We had two introductory sermons at the very beginning. Well, let's read together, or let's listen together to the reading of God's word as it is described to us in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in me, In my father's house are many rooms. If you were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is a Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may be in gro- glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you loved me, you, would, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he lives in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while I'm still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I live with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away, I'm I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak to you much longer. For the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father, and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This was the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Let's go to Him, let's go to the Holy Spirit, and ask them together to speak to us and to refresh this word for our hearts so we may know how to apply it. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty Father, the Precious One who has sent us Your Son and who also has sent us Your Holy Spirit, we approach You in these moments after the reading of Your Word and we ask, would You send us Your Spirit again? Let Him illumine our minds. Let Him speak to our hearts so that this Word may be applied to our lives. In the name of Christ we pray and for His honor. Amen. Friends, Jesus begins comforting his disciples by telling them of his father's house. It has many rooms or many dwelling places. And Jesus is going away. He's going there so he can prepare a place for his disciples. So where he is, they can be with him also. Now, there is an important assumption here that the passage doesn't make explicit. But we have to understand. This was Jesus' ultimate destination, the Father's house. That was his true home. That's where Jesus belongs for all eternity. If he's eternal son of his eternal father, he belongs for eternity to be in his Father's house. Remember Jesus at the age of 12? When of his parents were looking after him in the temple. And finally, three days later, they found him. And he said to them, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? That's where Jesus truly belongs. And now he's telling these disciples that he's going back there. As great the fellowship was for three and a half years, as great as as, as 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 great as it was for them to do many adventures together. All the miracles, all the stories, all the memories, all the, the close relationships they had together, as great as they were for three and a half years, it was time for him to go back to the Father. Because he belongs. The Father's house. But Jesus gives him a promise. I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. Oh, what a great promise! What a great comfort. Especially if we remember what he told the Jews earlier that where he is going, no one can follow him. No wonder these disciples were so troubled. What do you mean? Three and a half years, all these great promises, we thought you were the king of Israel. We thought you were the one who's going to bring the redemption. You're the one who's going to make us free finally. What do you mean you're, you're going away and no one can follow you? At least not now. Troubled hearts. And Jesus then tells them something that was supposed to assure them and comfort them. Not only is he going and then coming back to get him. That was a great news. But then verse 4, this was supposed to comfort them. Look at verse 4. Jesus gives them an assurance, a great assurance. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas, he's a little more realistic. Verse 5, he says, no, 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 Jesus, hold on, pause. We still don't know where you're going, let alone will we know the way there. Look at the way Jesus answers. Verse 6, I am the way, Thomas. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the the point Jesus makes is in verse 7. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And then Jesus wants to give him another assurance. Look at the second part of verse 7. This was supposed to, to, to assure them again. From now on, you know him, namely the Father, and have seen him. But this second assurance and comfort also fails to produce its effects. Actually, this second assurance gets the disciples even more confused. Philip in verse 8 says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. And It's as if at this point Jesus realizes that he has to start back with the basics with these disciples. Because they didn't get it. All along for three years, Jesus has been telling them the works I'm doing, it's the Father doing it. What I'm teaching you, it's the Father's words, and they don't get it. So in verse 9, Jesus says, Don't you know me, Philip? I mean, you can always sense the, the, the sense of, 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 of disappointment in Jesus' words. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time? And the basics. Jesus begins recounting, relate to the Trinity. And to the Trinitarian relationships within the Godhead. Jesus teaches them again about how God the Son relates to God the Father. And later he will introduce them to the Holy Spirit. And how these relationships act between themselves, these three persons of the Trinity, how they act among themselves and then how they affect us and our relationship with this triune God. And somehow knowing the three persons of the Trinity, of the triune God and how they relate among themselves, knowing this should provide comfort for the souls of these disciples. That's why the theme of this sermon this morning is the Trinity, Comfort, for troubled souls, for troubled hearts. What should give comfort to these disciples? What should give comfort to these disciples? I want us to, to, to look at three unities that are happening in this passage. The unity between Jesus and the Father. Second, the unity between the Spirit and Jesus. Thirdly, the unity between us and God. Let's look at these three unities. friend. You may have a troubled heart this morning. And it may be for various reasons that your heart is troubled. Perhaps the reason why your heart is troubled this morning is somewhat different than the reason why the disciples' hearts were troubled. Perhaps your heart is troubled this morning because some sort of a hardship you're going through. Perhaps it's because some disappointment you're experiencing. Or perhaps it's because. Things are not going on in your life the way you expected them to be. Friends, I just want to tell you in a a way that I don't want to, I want it to be a comfort, not an admonition, but sometimes our hearts are troubled because of sinful desires. That's just a hint. This is supposed to comfort you. I know it's harsh. But sometimes our hearts are troubled because of sinful desires. We desire Perhaps sinful things, and we don't get them, and therefore our hearts are troubled. Sometimes we may desire good things, but with sinful motivations, and the Lord won't give it to us. And we're, our hearts are troubled. Do you know what troubled the hearts of these disciples? Do you remember what it was? What troubled their hearts was the fact that Jesus was going to go away. And that troubled their hearts deeply. Friends, these these disciples weren't troubled because they had left everything and followed the Lord. These, These disciples were not troubled because they had left their businesses, their father's businesses, their families, everything, and said, We are giving our, we're selling our lives for Jesus. That's not what troubled their hearts as oftentimes it troubles us, right? What troubled the hearts of these disciples was the news that Jesus was going away. Friends, let me ask you, if you had been in their shoes, would that news have mattered to you? Would that have troubled your heart? Would you have been troubled by that news? Friends, I pray that our hearts would be troubled by the right things. Because only then can the comfort of Jesus make its effects on us. I pray that we would be troubled by the right things. Because only then do the words of Jesus comfort our hearts. The unity between Jesus and the Father. Let's look at the first one. The unity between Jesus and the Father. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now this claim is absolutely, absolutely, absolutely staggering. No human being on the face of this planet ever, ever has claimed these words no religious figure of any other religious system has ever claimed something so staggering as this to see him to, is to see god yet this is what jesus claimed because jesus is equal to god hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 the son is a radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being colossians 1:15 Says he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. To see Jesus is to see God. Now, the disciples didn't see this because they didn't understand what Jesus claimed to be, and they were still struggling with their faith in this object and this definition of of the divinity, of the sonship of Jesus and his relationship to the Father. Now, How did Jesus explain this to his disciples? That to see Jesus is to see the Father. It's very important for us to understand what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that he is identical with the Father. Or that Jesus is another form of the Father. This is a teaching of modalism. It's a heretical teaching. It is a false teaching that Jesus is just another form of the Father. No, rather look at how Jesus defines his relationship of of being one with the Father. Look at verse 10. Jesus says that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. They are distinct persons, but they act in unity. They indwell each other. And this was seen in Jesus' teaching and his miracles. Even though though what the disciples saw in the miracles was the actions of the Son, they were also the actions of the Father in raising a dead man, in giving sight to the blind, in changing the water into wine, in, in multiplying the bread in the desert. These were not only the acts of Jesus, but they were also simultaneously the acts of the Father. It's not either or, it's both. Because the Father indwells the Son, and the Son indwells the Father. That's why Jesus was able to say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's why Jesus comforted his disciples earlier, saying that from now on you do know the Father and have seen him. The comfort these disciples received is the assurance that to see Jesus is to see the Father. Now the comfort we too can have, is that those who believe in Christ have access to God the Father. Christ is the only access to the Father. Because Christ is the ultimate truth about what the Father is like, and Christ is the only one who gives us the life from the Father. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is why Christ is so important for us Christians. By the way, this is why why we take the name from Christ. Christians. This is the reason. There's no other way to God the Father. Christ is the only way we have to God. There is no other way. We can't be good enough on our own. We can't approach God hoping that somehow God will just give us the the, the pass so we'll pass by him. He'll just be merciful to us on that day. No, he will not. The only way we get to Him and we pass through Him into His presence, eternal experience, is through Christ, through what He has done for us to take the penalty of our sins so that we could be made free, so that we could know God, so that we could have the life of God. All of this is done for us only through Christ. Friend, do you know Jesus? If you're not a Christian this morning, do you know Him? Have you heard about Him? Do you know him personally? I pray that if you have not done so today, you would turn to him. And if this is your desire, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Please come and talk to me. I'd like to make sure that you know that the only way to God is through Jesus, and you know this Jesus. Now, Jesus draws out the practical implications for, of the truth that Jesus, are, and, Jesus and the Father are, are a unity, distinct but one. Here's a practical application for us also. Verse 10, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. I will do even greater things. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, Believing this truth about Jesus and the Father will enable his disciples now to continue the work Jesus has done. Even though Jesus goes to the Father, his disciples will be able to continue this work. That's a comfort. Now, a few words about the promise of doing greater things than these. Some think that Jesus is talking about doing more spectacular miracles that his disciples will do even after Jesus' departure. But this is not true. Greater things than these does not refer to more spectacular things. Otherwise, Um, It's pretty hard to think of anyone doing more spectacular things than raising a dead man after being dead for four days. So more spectacular things is not referring to the... the, or greater things is not referring to more spectacular miracles. So what is it referring to? In John, Jesus always talked about his departure to the Father as a departure of the cross. Once that has taken place... Jesus will draw all men to himself. He said in in chapter 3, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. His disciples were going to be given a worldwide mandate. Jesus' ministry was very local. The disciples were the ones who were to take it to the ends of the earth. This is the greater things that his followers will do. But how will these greater things be done? Verse 12 or 13 tells us, it's through prayer. Look at verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. These greater things will still be done by Jesus, but now through his disciples, through his followers, as they pray, as they pray for those greater things. Now, listen to the reason why Jesus will answer our prayers. And those of you who want an extra reason why you need to think about praying and how you pray? Listen to this reason, verse 13b. Jesus will answer our prayers not just for our benefit, but look at, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. That's why Jesus will answer the prayers of his disciples. Now, Jesus throughout his earthly ministry um, brought glory to the Father. And even after the returning to the Father, he will continue to do the same but now through answering our prayers. This understanding of our triune God not only comforts our souls, but it impacts our prayer life. God the Son is interested to bring glory to God the Father. That's the ultimate motivation for why He's answering our prayers. Now, Let me ask you this morning, are your prayers motivated by the same purpose? When you pray, do you pray with the same ultimate motivation that God, the Father, will be glorified by the way God, the Son, answers our prayers? When you pray for your kids, that they would be more obedient and quiet as Anka and I are praying these weeks, every day, every hour. Do you pray just so that you may have an easier day? Or that somehow God's name would be glorified through the lives of the children? When you pray that God would heal someone, do you pray just so that they might be comforted uh, from that illness? Or do you pray that somehow, ultimately, it will be for the glory of God? Friends, you see, when when we understand the ultimate motivation of the Son of God for the the Father, it turns our prayers to be ultimately God-centered prayers, not us-centered demands. And when we pray with that kind of motivation, we can say in full faith, Lord, not my will be done, but yours, because everything is for your glory, whether you answer this in my way or not. It really impacts our prayer life when we understand the relationship within the Trinity. That God the Son is eternally committed to glorify God the Father even when He's no longer on earth with us. Because He's committed to answer our prayers so that the name of the Father would be ultimately glorified. Imagine what comfort this must have been to the disciples. That even though Jesus is going away, they are assured of having access to the Father. And even if Jesus is going away, they're comforted by the ongoing ministry of Jesus through the prayers of His disciples. And their assurance that Jesus will answer their prayers is the eternal, as the eternal motivation of the Son to the Father. What a comfort and encouragement that is for our prayer life. Dear followers of Christ, do not... Let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in Jesus. But it's not just the unity between Jesus and the Father that should comfort us. It's also the unity between Jesus and the Spirit. Let's look next. The unity between Jesus and the Spirit. The one thing Jesus will ask the Father, actually the first thing we are told in this passage, Jesus will ask the Father to do for his disciples is to give the Spirit. is to send the counselor, another counselor. This means, when, when Jesus says, another counselor, this means, implies very clearly, that Jesus was the first one. Both of them, were sent by the Father. Jesus was sent by the Father, and the Holy Spirit, would be sent by the Father, at the request of the Son. And in the name of the Son, Jesus says that this counselor, is a Spirit of truth. Now remember just in, Earlier, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Spirit is a Spirit of truth. In other words, He is continuing the work of Jesus. Because He is a Spirit of truth, He will do the work of Jesus in His disciples. In chapter 16, Jesus will say more about the Spirit's work in the relationship to the world. But here in chapter 14, the focus is just on what the Spirit will do to the disciples. Jesus says that the world will not know the Spirit, but his disciples will know him, and the Spirit will live with them and in them, in verse 17. In other words, what will distinguish these disciples from the rest of the world is that they will have in them the third person of the Trinity. He will live in them, and they will know him. Remember, Jesus gave these assurances, you know the way, you know where I'm going, and said, no, we don't. And Jesus said, you know the Father, and said, no, we don't. And now Jesus gives another assurance, says, you will know the Holy Spirit, and this time it will stick. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He, makes, uh, he brings to us the, the Trinity, he brings the Father to us, he brings the Son to us, he actually makes all this stick together. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Friend, if you're a Christian, do you live c- consciously that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? This third person of the Trinity, this other counselor of the same kind as Jesus, has come to dwell inside of us and among us? But Look at, look at what else the Spirit will do in verse 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is incredible comfort for these disciples who feel like Jesus is is leaving them. He says, okay, but I'm sending you someone who will not only continue to teach you the full truth, but he'll remind you of everything I said to you. Now, it's important for us as we apply this verse to realize something very important. This verse is not applied first and foremost directly to us in the sense that somehow the Spirit now is giving us new revelation. This verse 26 was applied directly and fully to the disciples and their generation alone. Why do I say this? This is given to these disciples because it was they who knew and heard what Jesus had told them physically. It was they who needed to be reminded of everything that Jesus told them physically. And whatever the Spirit will give to them, which they will continue to teach their followers, and eventually be inscripturated, that will have authority for everybody else. And that refers to the canon of Scripture, the writings of the Scriptures. The, the canon of Scripture was completed, was written at least, was written within the first generation of the eyewitness of Jesus. This means for us that this verse applies to us only indirectly in the sense that now we can have confidence that whatever those disciples remembered and wrote and taught has the same authority that Jesus had himself. So when you hear people today say, I don't believe the Bible is is God's word. It was written by men. Well, yes, it was written by men. But it was written by men who who were assisted and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, so whatever they teach and write had the same authority as if God himself was among us. So the application of verse 26 is for us to bolster our confidence in the truthfulness of these words, of the Scriptures. That's why we don't look to the Spirit today to give us new revelation. We don't look at other documents of, scri- of, of of revelation outside of Scripture to take our guide for what we do as Christians. That's why, let me say this experience, um, I hear sometimes people say, well, I sense the Spirit led me to do this. Or people would come to my office and say, I'm thinking about doing this. And as I listen to what they want to do, it's clearly not in Scripture. I mean, it's against Scripture. But they would say, but I prayed about it. And I sense a spirit that's leading me to do this. And my, almost all the time, my, my first answer is after that kind of explanation is, would you tell me where in Scripture is that coming from? What exactly in Scripture gives you grounds to think that you could do this? See, even us Christians, sometimes we think that the Holy Spirit guides us and gives us some sort of truth or, or illumination apart from this book. Or independent of this book. The Holy Spirit today for us brings this book and makes it real to our lives because He's the one who inspired it. And that's why verse 26 in some way is applied directly only to the disciples to inspire and affirm that what they were to write and continue to teach was the truth of God. And then it applies to us only indirectly that we can trust those writings and that and that alone is the the, the guidance that we have in terms of and the revelation of God that we have of the written scriptures. Does that make sense? Do you understand how that works out? The unity between Jesus and the Spirit gives comfort to us because now the Holy Spirit gives us confidence that this book is worthy to be followed in its entirety. And every decision we make in life, we want to examine it according to these scriptures because the Holy Spirit has been the one guiding the disciples and assuring them of the continued teaching of Christ and God the Father. So what does this mean for us? Some more things that it means for us, some more comfort that it means for us. It's not only be the unity between Jesus and the Spirit, it also means that we have a confidence that now this Godhead, this unity of, of the three persons, they're not just out there. Through the Holy Spirit, they're in here. The third unity is a unity between God and us, between us and God. It's interesting to notice that it's after Jesus introduces Spirit's work. He says in verse 20, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus was in his Father, but now through the Spirit, in some way, Jesus also is in us, and we in Jesus. This is a real deal. We may not have a fuzzy, it's not about just having a fuzzy feeling or some sort of miraculous experience. Actually, the text tells us that what characterizes our unity with Jesus, what characterizes our unity with Jesus, is our love for Jesus. our love for Jesus. Because when Jesus starts talking about the unity between, now between him and the disciples, the first thing he talks about or the constant thing he talks about is the love between his disciples and Jesus. Look with me. Look with me for a second in verse 15. As a matter of fact, there are four times that Jesus brings this up. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Look at verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And look at verse 24, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Four times in this chapter, Jesus points this out, what will characterize the relationship between these disciples and Jesus So that this whole thing of Jesus being in disciples and disciples in Jesus is the relationship of love, the love of the disciples towards Jesus. Actually, friends, our unity with God is expressed through love for him in this passage. There's other ways our unity with God is expressed elsewhere in the Bible, but in this passage, it's expressed through our love for him. And our love for him is expressed through our willing obedience to his commands. Our love for Him is expressed through our willing obedience to His commands. Actually, our unwillingness to follow God's commands is a sign of our lack of love. Even though we think we love Him. Verse 24, He who does not love me will not obey. Jesus here is not commanding us to obey Him. He's telling us the essence of our true union with Him. It's love for Him. So when we feel often that God's commands are difficult and we're tempted not to follow them, have you ever been there? When, we're, when we feel like God's commands are difficult and we're tempted not to follow them, we should remember that the motivation to obey God's commands is because we love Him. I don't obey God out of duty, but out of love, or I should. Out of love, even when I don't feel like it. Because love, it's not a feeling, it's a commitment. If we would get this, how would our marriages look like? How much lower would our divorce rates be, especially among Christians? Friend, are you struggling this morning to follow God's commands? Is there something in your life that you're struggling to follow God's commands? Are there decisions in your life where you know God is not honored by your actions, it's not the best thing to do, but you have a hard time making that turn? Here's something to consider. Don't think it's just a duty to follow God. It's an act of love. Your difficulty is not just a duty difficulty, it's a love difficulty. There are often two loves inside of us, at war in our hearts, love for God and love for self, self self-love. And when these are in conflict, it's so easy to rationalize these and mix them together, saying that what's best for me must be God's will. So that, we think, means to love God, because we're following God's will, because we're following what's best for us, because God's will is what's best for us. That's how the rationalization takes place. But friends, realize that when we struggle to follow God's commands, when we know that it it may not be right, it's not right. Remember, it's love of God. That's what characterizes our unity with God. But look at how Jesus concludes this chapter. Verse 28. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. If these disciples loved Jesus, they would be glad for him that he's going back to his Father. That's where he belongs. And he's going back to the one who is greater than Jesus. This does not mean that Jesus is inferior to God or less of a God. This was the the heresy developed in the 4th century by Arius. In what sense is the Father greater than Jesus? Yet Jesus is not less inferior than the Father. It's not in essence or might or even eternality because in these categories they are equal and yet the father is greater than jesus in the sense that the father is the one who gives the commands and the father and the son executes the son never gives commands never so even though each of the persons of the trinity are equal in essence and power there is a distinction there is a hierarchy in their roles it was god the father who put together the plan of redemption And it was God the Son who executed it. And it was God the Holy Spirit who applies it to our hearts. So because God the Father is greater than Jesus, it is better for Jesus to go back to his Father. They belong together. Yes, the departure of Jesus is less comforting for these disciples. But if they loved Jesus, they would want what's best for him. And the last two verses of this chapter talk again about Jesus' departure. The Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. So the question is, and why die on the cross? Because Jesus says, but the world must learn that I love the Father. And I do exactly what my Father commanded me or has commanded me. There are two final applications of this point. Jesus' motivation to die for us was indeed because he loved us. But this verse tells us that below that love, there was a deeper love. It was the Son's love for the Father that motivated Jesus to die for us. This is how the triune God acts within himself. The reason why the plan of redemption was able to be executed in the first place was because God the Son loves God the Father. And yes, God the Father gave His Son because He loves us, but God the Son gave Himself for us because He loved His Father. This means that the Gospel is not man-centered, but it is God-centered. The ultimate reason, motivation why Jesus died for us was because of the relationships within the Trinity between the Son and the Father. That's why understanding the Trinity brings comfort to our souls. Because when we understand that Jesus did all this for us, not just because he loved us, it's because of a deeper love he had with his Father for all eternity. Friends, our redemption is grounded in how the persons of the Trinity relate to one another. But a second application, even for the Son of God, His love for His Father is not just a fuzzy feeling. It's not just a spiritual reality. The love of the Son for His Father was expressed by the fact that the Son does exactly what His Father commanded Him. And the command was to go and die for us. When we think of the cross, we're often encouraged to meditate on how much Jesus loved us. But this text tells us that when we think about the cross, we should also meditate on how much Jesus loved his father. And this gives us a greater motivation for understanding why our love for Jesus is expressed by doing his commands. It's not just because Jesus said so. It's because Jesus did so to his father. That puts the command and the relationship between loving God and following him and following his commandments we understand that that is grounded in the Trinity himself. Friends, the unity between us and God should be informed and and defined and modeled by the unity between the persons of the Trinity. Specifically for us, this unity with God is expressed by our love for God, which in turn is displayed by our commitment and obedience to him. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. And trust in me, said Jesus. He has given us the promise of the Holy Spirit, who now unites us with God in a way that makes our love for him real, expressed in real actions, real decisions in our daily lives, so that we now would love Jesus. We would love the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit with a love that is willing to sacrifice for him. But that love, dear friends, is not just the love to Jesus. It's also the love towards one another. Because Jesus says, as I have loved you, you must love one another. When we understand the Trinity, we understand how we are supposed to love one another as well. And that's the glory and the wisdom of the church with which God chose to display it through our relationships week in, week out as we gather and as we live together. So it's not just me and Jesus. It's us and the Trinity. May God be praised. Let's pray.